Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to have a new essay for you today. It is called The Ringmaster, The Mercenary, and The Fortune Teller. How Klaus Schwab, Larry Fink, and Dr. Harari promote the idea of a good creation. My dad used to tell the story of a man he knew who had been tortured by terrorists in the Middle East. The man said, they have ways of torturing you that you will say anything just to make it stop. You think you won't, but you will. But you know what? They can make you deny the truth with your words, but they cannot control your mind. In your mind, you are free. I always loved hearing that story. In my mind, I am free. If the elite have their way, this could very soon no longer be true. Soon it can happen that a person will smile and raise his hand in support of clean energy, lockdowns, war, whatever the next cause celebra may be. But if inside his mind he is thinking even the smallest doubt as to the validity of the cause, AI will know. He will be identified as a domestic terrorist and taken away to the gulag. There will be no need for a trial or proof. His thoughts will condemn him. And yet, even with this terrifying prospect, we leap eagerly into ever more complex technologies. We are now so entangled with technology. How many of us can say with certainty that we could live without it? This is the fourth industrial revolution, or 4IR, on steroids. And it refers to our current period of rapid technological growth, which is blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological worlds. As we march forward, the problems of the world escalate at an exponential rate. With each new and ever more marvelous discovery comes an even more destructive reaction, the yin and the yang, the positive and the negative. Take COVID, for example, a manufactured disaster, or if you have trouble accepting that, then a pandemic that happened by chance and jumped from nature to humans. Our solution is pro proving far more disastrous than the disaster itself. Here are some of the problems our solution has caused. 87K tons of PPE, 2.6K tons of plastic from test kits, 144K tons of waste from vaccines, 731K liters of chemical waste. In the early 2000s, the amount of plastic waste generated rose more in a single decade than it had in the previous 40 years. Today, humans produce 300 million tons of plastic waste every single year, according to the United Nations Environment Program. But that's not all. What is truly concerning is that we are now finding plastic inside of our own bodies, in our lungs, and in our blood. In a study released in March of this year, scientists reported that they had found multiple types of plastic in blood samples supplied by 17 out of 22 anonymous healthy adult donors for the first time. In a time when elitists are pushing their 4IR upon us, assuring us that singularity is a good thing, our bodies are being invaded by the very pollutants they have vowed time and time again to eliminate. How long will it be before our bodies simply cannot sustain this type of intrusion? On every level, ordinary humans are paying the price of the elitist globalist agenda, all for our own good. We've been told that during the height of COVID, lockdowns brought fast global ozone reductions. Great, let's do it again. In fact, Europeans are being advised that besides 
sending billions in aid to Ukraine, they must sacrifice even more to punish Putin. The International Energy Agency is proposing bans on continental air travel and bans also on car use within cities, not to mention rationing energy use inside homes. In November 2021, the world's top business and political figures gathered in Glasgow for COP26 to discuss yet another newer, better, more ambitious climate agreement. Noticeably absent were heads of state, such as Putin and Xi Jinping. Another absentee was Mexican President López Obrador, who said these summits resemble those in Davos, mocking WEF attendees as technocrats and neoliberals. Ah, yes, the World Economic Forum. Along with its founder, Klaus Schwab, it seems to be all over the news lately. The elite want us to know that they have it all figured out. Don't worry. Just follow their plan for the Great Reset, and we have a chance to save the planet. But we must be willing to do our part. What does that really mean? It means that the elite have grown tired of pretending to care about the rest of us. They are getting on with their plans and making no secret about it. Their plan is no different from what it has always been, eugenics. The word eugenics literally means good creation. Looking at the history of the eugenics movement in America, it was rooted in the biological determinist ideas of Sir Francis Galton, who origin which originated in the 1880s. In 1883, Sir Francis Galton first used the word eugenics to describe scientifically and biological improvements of genes in human races and the concept of being well-bred. The first International Eugenics Congress was held in London in 1912. Leonard Darwin, Charles Darwin's son, presided over the event, which was attended by such luminaries as Sir Winston Churchill, Arthur Balfour, and Alexander Graham Bell. In America, in the first part of the 20th century, compulsory sterilization laws adopted by over 30 states led to more than 60,000 sterilizations of disabled individuals. Between 1934 and 1945, the National Socialist Compulsory Sterilization Program led to approximately 350,000 compulsory sterilizations. The American eugenics movement received extensive funding from various corporate foundations, including the Carnegie Institute, Institution, Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman Railroad Fortune. As is so often the case, California was on the cutting edge of this practice. From 1909 to 1979, around 20,000 sterilizations occurred in California state mental institutions under the guise of protecting society from the offspring of people with mental illness. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, supported sterilization of those who were deemed unfit to reproduce. Recently, in an op-ed for the Arizona Capital Times, Arizona State Representative Walt Blackman, a Black Republican, pointed to a 2011 CDC report finding that while Black women make up 14% of the childbearing population, 36% of all abortions were obtained by Black women. And a study by Protecting Black Lives in 2012 found that 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of minority communities. It is then no surprise that as science and technology have advanced, the elite have seen it as a way to further their eugenics agenda and an agenda that has remained consistent through the ages. 
The elite can now snip and clip our genes. They can tinker with our minds and our bodies. They can chip us, tattoo us, drug us, and inject us. Not in prisons or mental institutions, but among ordinary middle and lower classes, all for our own health and safety. In December 2020, the World Economic Forum unveiled its bioengineering framework in a presentation called Three Scenarios for How Bioengineering Could Change Our World in 10 Years. Edible vaccines grown in plants and CRISPR gene editing were among the highlights. The presentation was based off of a World Economic Forum-sponsored academic paper called Bioengineering Horizon Scan 2020. Inspiration came from or some inspiration came from Matthew Lau, a bioethicist at NYU who presented a proposal back in 2012 titled Human Engineering and Climate Change. To lower birth rates, Lau suggested that, lowering class, that lower class women should start consuming smart drugs to enhance their cognitive abilities, since smarter women have less children. He also suggested that another possible human engineering solution is to use cognition enhancements such as Ritalin and Modafinil to achieve lower birth rates. Lau thinks it would be cool to create people with night vision cat eyes whose reduced need for lighting would result in the reduction of energy consumption. Lau also wants people to be prescribed with pro-social hormones like oxytocin so they will be more more cooperative in taking action against climate change. Lau suggested this necessity of a eugenics program against tall people because tall people consume too many calories, odd he didn't mention fat people, including injecting children with hormones to stunt their growth. As radical as Matthew Lau's human bioengineering suggestions might seem, their consideration and deliberation by the World Economic Forum is no surprise. Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, considers bioengineering a key component of the ongoing fourth industrial revolution. Being well-born is what it is all about. The uber elite and their academic and scientific advisors have murdered and terrorized their way so far up the food chain that they really believe they are some sort of gods on the cusp of ushering in a utopia. Just like every sports game you ever watched has a winner and a loser, everyday life is no different. The winners are leaving the losers farther and farther behind. It doesn't matter if the winner of a girl's swimming race is a biological male with a penis and massive muscles. What matters is that he wins. Those frail girls are useless. Discard them. This is the game of life, and life is cruel. The elite are tired of pulling us along. Dr. Yuval Noah Harari warns us how we are all hackable animals in danger of becoming irrelevant. According to Harari, we are B times C times D equals AHH, or biological knowledge times computer power times data equals ability to hack humans. The World Economic Forum serves the purpose of getting us all used to this idea of reduction to the physical. There is no soul. Get over it. At the same time, it promises us that if we submit to the authority of the all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-benevolent elite, we can be saved. The World Economic Forum acknowledges the challenges of our times and convenes endless conferences to discuss these challenges. It presents solutions that, if followed, it assures us will usher in a utopia for all of us. For many, the WEF seems like the most absurd farce and not to be taken seriously. That's fine. 
They do not care whether you believe it or not. The important thing is that it is in your consciousness. Eventually, all will accept their useless either status. COVID was a giant leap towards this goal, and now the war in Ukraine is carrying on this indoctrination of self-sacrifice. The bombardment of new plagues and climate change over the next few years will seal the deal. Let's take a look at Klaus Schwab, the ringmaster. Klaus Schwab certainly has a knack for putting on a good show and promoting it so that everyone who's anyone clamors to be a part of it. The wealthy are no different from the rest of us in their desire to belong to the in-crowd. Let me be clear that when I talk about the wealthy, I am not referring to the ruling elites, but rather the thousands of rich individuals beneath them. Schwab is a master at milking the rich and making them feel good about it. Over the years, what started as an exclusive club has turned into a propaganda machine for the ruling elites, exploiting not only the lower classes, but also the moneyed wealthy. Schwab was born in 1938, the year of Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. In the space of that one night, pogroms unleashed against the Jewish population destroyed 7,500 Jewish businesses, 267 synagogues were burned, 91 Jews were killed, and at least 25,000 Jewish men arrested. Kristallnacht was a spark that lit the fires of World War II. Klaus Schwab's family lived in Ravensburg, Germany. His father managed to keep his family safe, but the price he paid was a moral one. Little is known of Schwab's childhood. You have to dig to find out information, such as is recorded in this unlimited Hangout article. Especially revealing is the history of Klaus's father, Eugene Schwab, who led the Nazi-supported German branch of a Swiss engineering firm into the war as a prominent military contractor. That company, Escher Weiss, would use slave labor to produce machinery critical to the Nazi war effort, as well as the Nazis' effort to produce heavy water for its nuclear program. Years later, at the same company, a young Klaus Schwab served on the board of directors when the, when the decision was made to furnish the racist apartheid regime of South Africa with the necessary equipment to further its quest to become a nuclear power. Shirley Schwab was deeply affected by growing up in such a violent and unstable world, while at the same time he must have struggled to reconcile such disturbing contradictions within his own family. Perhaps his way to make it right was to create the World Economic Forum, an organization that now claims it will save the world. How strange it is that those who are inspired to do good because of the horrors of their past often fall under the same evil spell they vowed to never be a part of. We can find proof of this in Schwab's own writings. One of the greatest lessons of the past five centuries in Europe and America is this. Acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. It's always been the case, and there is no reason why it should be different with the COVID-19 pandemic. Klaus went on to work for his father's old company, and in 1970, he left Escher Weiss to organize a two-week business managerial conference. In 1971, the first meeting of the World Economic Forum, then called the European Management Symposium, convened in Davos, Switzerland. Around 450 influential participants from 31 countries took part. In order for the privileged 1% to fleece everyone else, they need to hide behind a facade of altruism. Schwab well understood this basic principle. He'd been hiding from the truth all his life. With the World Economic Forum, he created a safe haven for his kind, an exclusive club unlike any other that gave the wealthy the appearance of philanthropy while at the same time allowing them to schmooze, party, and make backroom deals. 
In the meantime, Schwab is no doubt laughing behind the backs of the wealthy that he is fleecing, not the top billionaires like Bezos, Gates, Musk, and the likes, but the thousands beneath them, because there is always a hierarchy, from whom he builds hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for forum memberships, plus tens of thousands more for attending meetings. For the wealthy, talking about social justice and climate change is more important than actually doing it. They can go back home knowing that they put on the good show of adhering to the slogan of the forum, committed to improving the state of the world. Schwab's WEF has grown more prominent in the public eye recently. The more dystopian our world becomes, the more the WEF seems to reflect that dystopia, or perhaps the forum is creating it. Where once no one would have ever taken a slogan like, you will own nothing and you will be happy, seriously, it is now being repeated over and over to the point where, if not quite yet, people are beginning to think of it as a reasonable concept. For all appearances, Schwab believes that he is a moral leader worthy of adoration for creating his egalitarian vision of the future of mankind. He has created a larger-than-life persona, dazzling the world with his show. He is the ringmaster, but there are others who control him. He is but a puppet himself. <clears throat> Next, we have the mercenary, Larry Fink. Fink attended the United Nations World Economic Forum Davos meeting in January 2020, where the Great Reset was on their agenda. He sits on the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum. None of the utopian plans put forth by Schwab could be carried out without mercenaries like Larry Fink. Money enabled us to build this great civilization, and now, as never before, it is in the hands of a few powerful elite managed by mercenaries like Larry Fink. The ETF, or exchange-traded fund, sector controls nearly half of all investments in U.S. stocks and is dominated by just three giant American asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. These are called the Big Three. Of those Big Three, BlackRock has been called the most powerful institution in the financial system, the most powerful company in the world, and the secret power. It is the world's largest asset manager and shadow bank, larger than the world's largest bank, which is in China, with over $7 trillion in assets under direct management and another $20 trillion managed through its Aladdin risk monitoring software. BlackRock has also been called the fourth branch of government and almost a shadow government, but no part of it actually belongs to the government. Despite its size and global power, BlackRock is not even regulated as a systemically important financial institution. Under the Dodd-Frank Act, thanks to pressure from its CEO, Larry Fink, who has long had a cozy relationship with government officials. In August of 2019, BlackRock executives, led by former Swiss National Bank head Philip Hildebrand, presented a proposal at the annual meeting of central bankers for, for an economic reset. Opportunely, the COVID-19 crisis presented the perfect excuse to execute this proposal in the U.S., with BlackRock appointed by government to administer it. In March 2020, BlackRock was awarded a no-bid contract under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act, to deploy a $454 billion slush fund established by the Treasury in partnership with the Federal Reserve. This fund, in turn, could be leveraged to provide over $4 trillion in Federal Reserve credit. 
While the public was distracted with protests, riots, and lockdowns, BlackRock suddenly emerged from the shadows to become the fourth branch of government, managing the controls to the central bank's print-on-demand fiat money. Larry Fink rose from humble beginnings. He was born in Van Nuys, the pit of the San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles, on November 2, 1952. His mother was an English professor. His father was a shoe store owner. So just like Schwab, he had his own unique challenges growing up. After graduating from UCLA, he became the managing director of the first Boston Corporation and served from 1976 until 1988. This was not an auspicious time for him. Under his leadership, the Credit Suisse First Boston Department lost $100 million. This was a turning point in his life motivating him to start his own investment company with better risk management. In, 1990, in 1988, Fink co-founded BlackRock. Unquestionably, Fink is a powerful man, but he is just another figurehead like Schwab. BlackRock is owned by shareholders, and the largest shareholder is Vanguard. Others more knowledgeable on the subject than myself have explored this dark and devious setup. Suffice it to say, the elite who own Vanguard are not the flashy ones throwing money around and having photo ops with Bono and Greta Thunberg at WEF events. Vanguard has a structure that blocks the public from seeing who the actual shareholders are, but we can guess it must be the uber elite. According to Forbes, there, are, there were 2,075 billionaires in the world as of March 2020. Galen, in his film Monopoly, Who Owns the World, cites Oxfam data showing that two-thirds of billionaires obtain their fortunes via inheritance, monopoly, and or cronyism. This means that Vanguard is in the hands of the richest families on earth, Gillian said. Among them we find the Rothschilds, the DuPont family, the Rockefellers, the Bush family, and the Morgan family, just to name a few. Many belong to royal bloodlines and are the founders of our central banking system, the United Nations, and just about every industry on the planet. Where Schwab represents the charitable view of the elite and how much good they want to do for the world with their utopian visions, Fink represents the pragmatic side. It was fascinating to hear his recent reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In a March 2022 letter to shareholders, Fink wrote, The world is undergoing a transformation. Russia's brutal attack on Ukraine has upended the world order that had been in place since the end of the Cold War more than 30 years ago. And the war has put an end to the globalization we have experienced over the last three decades. According to Fink, dark days are ahead, spurring countries to become less dependent on outside resources. French Minister of Economy and Finance, Bruno Le Maire echoed the sentiment when speaking about President Macron's campaign pledges. This is the end of naive, naive globalization, the end of happy globalization where everything is fine. But wait a minute, this sounds in direct contradiction to all we've been told about globalization and the Great Reset, except that it isn't. Make no mistake, while the rest of us are hunkering down and sacrificing to punish Putin, business continues as usual in the upper echelons. The levels of wealth and power that are being accumulated by the elite because of this war knows no borders and will be well and will go well beyond anything they achieved with COVID. In August 2021, BlackRock set up its first mutual fund in China after raising over $1 billion from 111,000 Chinese investors. 
BlackRock became the first foreign-owned company allowed by the Chinese government to operate a wholly-owned business in China's mutual fund industry. In 2021, BlackRock was an investor in two companies that have been blacklisted by the U.S. government for human rights abuses against Uyghurs and in Xinjiang. In one case, Higvision, BlackRock increased its level of investment after the company was blacklisted. BlackRock is the largest investor in weapons manufacturers through its iShares U.S. Aerospace and Defense ETF. And of course, along with Vanguard Group and State Street Corps, BlackRock is one of the largest stakeholders in Pfizer, owning 407 million shares, representing 7.3% total shares outstanding as of June 30th, 2021. We always think of dangerous, cold-blooded mercenaries as those who join organizations like Blackwater, Interesting how similar the name is. Mercenaries kill for money. They have no conscience. But the most dangerous of all are the guys like Fink, the mercenaries to whom the existential idea of money, not the physical thrill of attaining it, is the driving force of their lives. They live, eat, and breathe money. They understand money better than anyone else. They love nothing better than to play with it and manipulate it, eager to prove their prowess to their overlords. Lastly, let's take a look at the fortune teller, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari was born and raised in Kiryat Atta, Israel, one of three children born to Shlomo and Penina Harari. His father was a state-employed armaments engineer, and his mother was an office administrator. Harari was not an ordinary child. He was incredibly gifted and taught himself to read at age three. In 2002, Harari met his husband, Itzik Yahav, whom he calls my internet of all things, a description I like very much. They live in a moshav, a type of cooperative agricultural community for individual farms near Jerusalem. Harari says Vispana meditation has transformed my life. He practices for two hours every day and every year undertakes a meditation retreat of 30 days or longer in silence and with no books or social media. And what I find really interesting is he doesn't own a smartphone. I'm fascinated by Harari. There is much about him to admire. However, instead of being a voice for the people, he has become the darling of the elite. His warnings are for their benefit, not ours. Harari is an important voice with the WEF, and Schwab looks to him for guidance. He has written interesting thoughts on free will. <clears throat> Whereas the idea of free will once emboldened people who had to fight against the Inquisition, the divine rights of kings, the KGB, and the KKK, it has become dangerous in a world of a data economy, economy where, he argues, in reality there is no such thing and governments and corporations are coming to know the individual better than they know themselves. And if governments and corporations succeed in hacking the human animal, the easiest people to manipulate will be those who believe in free will. Harari elaborates that humans certainly have a will, but it isn't free. You cannot decide what desires you have. Every choice depends on a lot of biological, social, and personal conditions that you cannot determine for yourself. I can choose what I eat, whom to marry, and whom to vote for. But these choices are determined in part by my genes, my biochemistry, my gender, my family background, my national culture, etc. And I didn't choose which genes or family to have. Yes, I agree with Harari's premise. No decision is ever made in a vacuum. Even something as mundane as deciding to go for a walk today at 3 p.m. 
is dependent on a billion things that happened before, threading all the way back to my genetic makeup and events from my childhood, leading up to that exact moment when I open the door and go for that walk. On the other hand, each decision we make reinforces a turning further toward good or a turning further toward evil. This concept is more complicated than even Harari's intelligent brain can understand, and this essay is already too long to explore it further here. But I think even Harari would agree that we did not create ourselves, and therefore we do not and never will know everything about ourselves, nor will AI. His ideas meld perfectly with the WEF. At the 2020 annual meeting of the, of the WEF, Harari warned us, whereas in the past, humans had to struggle against exploitation, in the 21st century, the really big struggle would be against irrelevance. And it's much worse to be irrelevant than to be exploited. Those who fail in the struggle against irrelevance will constitute a new useless class. People who are useless, not from the viewpoint of the friends and family, of course, but useless from the viewpoint of the economic and political system. And these useless class will be separated by an ever-growing gap from the ever more powerful elite. AI will create immense wealth in a few countries, while those countries who can't keep up will become exploited data colonies. When you have enough data, you don't need to send soldiers to control a country. So, tying this all in with what Fing said, countries with immense wealth and control through AI will not need to outsource anything to other countries. They can be self-sustaining so that the United States, for example, will no longer need to rely on other countries for clothing manufacture. The poor countries will become useless except to be picked clean for their natural resources. The people will be irrelevant. In our current situation, whoever controls the data controls the world. How do you equally distribute that? You can't. So we are back where we started with the elite believing they are close to achieving their goal of knowing everything about us better than we know ourselves. DARPA is developing such a program called NEAT, bringing together recent advances in cognitive science, neuroscience, physiological sensors, data science, and machine learning. It will develop processes that can measure what a person believes to be true. If this isn't terrifying, I don't know what is. Susan Bachrock, PhD, wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 29, 2004, the following. In democratic societies, the needs of public health sometimes require citizens to make sacrifices for the greater good. But in Nazi Germany, national or public health took complete precedence over individual health care. Physicians and medically trained academics, many of whom were proponents of race, racial hygiene or eugenics, legitimized and helped to implement Nazi policies aiming to cleanse the German society of people viewed as biologic threats to the nation's health. Racial hygiene measures began with the mass sterilization of the genetically diseased and ended with the near annihilation of European Jewry. How has anything changed in this horrifying desire to weed out the useless eaters and fine-tune the master race? It hasn't. Pertaining to the COVID-19 pandemic, Schwab states that the next hurdle is the political challenge of vaccinating enough people worldwide because we are collectively as strong as the weakest link with a high enough compliance rate despite the rise of anti-vaxxers. Who constitutes the weakest link? Will it be left up to AI to make this decision? And how will they get enough people to comply? Because global vaccination, along with security, surveillance, and data collection has not gone away. 
In the name of keeping everyone safe from infection, the globalists have justified unprecedented attacks on democracy, civil liberties, and personal freedoms, including the right to choose your own medical treatment. Now the WHO wants to create a global pandemic treaty that would create a one-size-fits-all approach to disease without regard for all the varying situations found in individual countries or within individuals themselves. The level of surveillance for our own good is reaching epic proportions. Facial recognition, gait analysis, digital assistance, effective computing, microchipping, digital lip reading, fingerprint sensors, as these and other technologies proliferate, we move into a world in which everything about us is captured, stored, and subjected to artificial intelligence algorithms, according to the World Economic Forum report. The Independent reported that an app was released in China that involves a kind of public shaming for people racking up debt. The app can be accessed on WeChat and displays a warning once a person gets within 500 meters of someone who's in debt. Harari's conclusion is a warning not for us, but for the elite he serves. If we allow the emergence of such total surveillance regimes, don't think that the rich and powerful in places like Davos will be safe. That is Yuval Harari's World Economic Forum 2020 warning to the elite, not to us. Yet they will not stop this quest for greater knowledge and power, even though it is quite likely they will not be able to control it. In their arrogance, they believe they can. They believe they can do this by turning on those beneath them and using us for experimentation to reach their goals. We need to be aware of what is going on so that we can protect our bodies and our minds. We are not merely hackable animals. We cannot be reduced to the weakest link. We must refuse to participate in this eugenic quest for a good creation. We do not exist for the elite to pick us apart. We are spiritual beings who only have to look to the heavens to understand that this vast universe is beyond our comprehension. No one, not ourselves, not the elite, not AI, will ever know us as well as our creator. Astronomer Alan Sandage said that, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God to me is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Why there is something instead of nothing. What happened that we have strayed so far from this basic principle? The more I explore these topics, the more convinced I am that we are made in the image of God, and it is God alone who knows us better than we know ourselves. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. Please share and comment. Thank you.